everybody. I am here today with Danny Hernandez. Danny is the CEO of Global Business Technologies uh, and, and ISV. And uh, how are you doing today there, Danny? Hey, uh, James. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you very much Good. for the invite to the show. Sure. Awesome. Well, so today, uh, Danny and I are going to discuss building an ISV, building a niche ISV, uh, and really just some of the challenges that you face uh, in building an ISV, an independent software vendor, and then also what it takes to partner with one of these companies. I've been talking a lot about that lately. But before we dive into that, Danny, I really wanted to kind of get some of your story. So could you give our listeners a little backstory on how you got into the point of sale space and, and kind of what path led you to uh, to start Global Business Technologies? Sure thing. Well, um, interestingly enough, my my parents actually owned a, a retail store. Oh. Uh, they were in the paint business. So um, I was curious, you know, being in high school, I, I, I was at the store on the weekends and after school and things, and uh, I was curious about computers. So I was working on computers and uh, seeing them using index cards to track the colors, the formulas that they were using for clients and things, I said, there has to be a better solution for this. <laughs> so I uh, started doing some research, and uh, next thing you know it, I ordered a computer, a barcode scanner, receipt printer, cash drawer, and I put, uh, without knowing what, what a POS was at that time, I put a POS uh, system together for them. Wow. And uh, it, yeah, it kind of just- this is when you were like, there. this is like when you were in uh, high we school. Were, I'm sorry? This is when you were in high school. Right. This is when I was in high That's school. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And and so the interesting thing there, the way it really evolved is um, they were selling the, the paint uh, to the local businesses. And so they saw what they were doing with inventory and receipt printing and all of that. Everybody was using ECRs. And um, right. so they started inquiring about, hey, where did you get that, that system? And so that kind of evolved from there where <laughs> we're at now. Wow, that's crazy, man. That's, that's pretty cool. So definitely you got the technology background. So, all right, so let's so talk a little bit about, um, you know, when you first started GBT, uh, you know, day one, you're, you're launching this, uh, you know, this company to provide point of sale systems, primarily, I believe, to grocery stores back then. Um, and other companies. So talk a little bit about your vision. What were you really trying to build from day one when you started the company? Well, um, my philosophy as a VAR and as a ISV hasn't really changed in that uh, we want to go beyond the expectation, going beyond the expectation for our clients. Um, and uh, as a VAR, what that meant was just doing those little extra things for our clients that uh, we knew that no one else was doing and was at the end of the day helping them, uh, you know, saving them time. They can get home earlier. They didn't have that extra worry about maybe generating payroll at the end of the week or some type of report that they were uh, investing time into. Um, so as an ISV, um, I, I try to carry that same philosophy in that, you know, ultimately our user interface, our user experience um, needs to take that into account. It needs to be easy, um, easy for the clients, easy for the uh, for the end users, which are usually the 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 cashiers using the system or the managers generating reports and editing inventory and all of that. So um, we got a lot of feedback over the years, and and we we we've collected that feedback and really developed around that feedback. So the system is quite easy to use. Um, we try to make everything uh, one button away, uh, right. whether it be adding a new item, a new department, a new user, generating a inventory report, adjusting inventory, 
or receiving an order from a vendor, um, all of those functions are, are essentially a button away. Awesome. Now, one thing I, I forgot uh, to ask you a minute ago is, is give us a little timeline on that. So how, how long ago did you actually start GBT? So uh, GBT was incorporated in 2008. Prior to that, um, I was working as a sole prop, uh, essentially doing POS systems. Uh, and um, that was, uh, I, I, I started in 1998. So from 1998 to 2008, I was working as an individual. Right. You know, we had a team in sure. place at that time. But sure. we officially incorporated in, in 2008. That's when things really started getting serious for us. We had a sure. large customer base and uh, it started evolving into different things yeah that's awesome so you got a long track record with it um i would love for you to talk to some that are listening who uh maybe have their own isv uh you know starting their company out what were some of the challenges that you faced in 2008 and even 1998 you know as you were the early stages of getting it going what were some of the key challenges that you faced to to get to where you're at now well, I think uh, the biggest challenge was building the team, you know, having the right developers in place, the right integrators, the right help desk, uh, testing, training. Uh, luckily, I mean, we've built a great team now, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're just on it. We're rolling, and uh, that, that was the biggest challenge, and it takes some time to develop that team. Yeah, it does. Um, and I would say, yeah, the, the, the second biggest challenge is, is really getting familiar with the process. Right. Um, whether it be the software development, um, you know, getting familiar with that process is, is challenging. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, and then I think even taking it a step further, talking about your team, um, one of the things that I think is really cool about you guys, it's, it's unique. I know a lot of ISVs who are totally dependent on other sources of distribution, whether that be, you know, ISO partnerships or whatever. But in your case, I mean, you guys do have a pretty good distribution channel on your own. Can you talk about your experience with, you know, getting leads, referrals, you know, and then building out that sales team and, and kind of having your own distribution? Can you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. That's a, that's an easy one. Uh, again, going back to the uh, the philosophy of going beyond the expectation. Uh, there's a great book I recommend everybody to read. It's uh, Tribes, We Need You to Lead Us by uh, Seth Godin. Yep. Um, that will really uh, change your perspective on what a sales team really is. Yeah. Um, yeah, if if you go beyond uh, for your clients, essentially you're you're creating these fans, these cheerleaders for your business, for your philosophy, for your for your company, and they are uh, in uh, in turn creating more fans and more cheerleaders for you. When when these uh, these uh, organic leads come in from these fans and cheerleaders, it's uh, you know they're very qualified, very strong. Essentially, they're they're recommended to you. So right. Um, it's the sales process is a lot a lot easier when you get those type of leads. And I would imagine it's probably a little easier for the salespeople as well as far as when they understand, you know, it's like I feel like a lot of salespeople they come to a company and very quickly the culture starts to kind of beat them down a little bit because they feel like, okay, I'm just like a, a sales robot that's supposed to go out and close deals. Whereas when they're kind of exposed to maybe a little bit of a higher purpose or a, you know a vision, um, you know, that's that's a huge part of building an effective sales team. Would you agree? Exactly. Yeah. When they see our logo, when they see our team coming in, they know that they're going to have a great experience. Right. They know that we're there to solve their problems. Cool. Um, and unfortunately, it's one of those things where they do sometimes have to go, you know, uh, uh, go through a, a path, uh, their first 
option, I guess, with someone else, and then eventually they, they can see the difference that, that a company like ours brings to the table. Sure. So so let's fast forward to today. I want to talk about what you're currently offering and dive into a little bit more detail about this because I know there's going to be ISOs listening that are interested and, okay, you know, we, we want to learn more about it. So what are you currently offering? What verticals do you service? You know, give us a little bit of a elevator pitch on kind of what you guys do today. Sure. Well, uh, percent POS um, is it could be used in general retail. That's primarily what uh, the vertical that we target. But more specifically, we're doing a lot of special things with grocery stores and hardware stores. Okay. Um, we have a couple of uh, EDI interfaces for grocery store uh, warehouses. You know, the warehouses where these grocery stores are ordering oh, their merchandise sure. from. Okay. Um, and for those that aren't familiar with EDI, essentially it's a data exchange. Uh, we're importing invoices, importing inventory, importing cost information, importing new items that are coming in in the truck before they get to the store. By the time they get to the store, all of this information is already in the system. And that's and that's um, huge. That's people, people that don't realize, yeah. I mean, grocery stores have a lot of SKUs. That's a lot of data entry that you just wiped out right there. Exactly. Yeah. So you're talking about, eh, on average, about 30,000 SKUs or so. And um, and so that's a lot of maintenance. I mean, typically a grocery store would, uh, uh, back in the day, have a price book manager where essentially all they did was update costs and prices all day because there was just so many price changes. Right. Well, this EDI interface automates that whole thing. Uh, it does it all automatically. Obviously, there's some checks and balances and the sure. user can can process it automatically or, or choose to filter through those changes or see them before they're processed. Right. Um, so that's a big one, the, the EDI interfaces. Those are, um, it's legacy technology, but that a lot of newer POS systems are not taking advantage of. They're not integrating. So I think that's what really sets yeah. us apart. Talk about uh, the hardware store angle. I'm, I'm actually not familiar with that one. So I get, you know, I know that you guys have a lot of cool stuff you do with the grocery and I, and they have the weight scales and a bunch of that kind of stuff that you need for grocery. What What's special about hardware stores that you do? Well, it's actually very, very similar. Um, they also use scales because they, they weigh the, the nails and the screws oh, sure. uh, for those okay. that sell by the weight. Okay. Um, but they all do shelf labels, uh, which we have. We have a, a, an editor uh, built into our software that you can custom build your own shelf label uh, or end cap sign. Right. Um, but uh, for the hardware stores, we also have uh, several EDI interfaces that we've sure. built uh, with the uh, larger uh, hardware vendors. And, and um, I, I will so tell you, to change all that data. Yeah, and I will tell our listeners for those of you that have not had this negative experience, uh, you know, the fastest way to lose a customer where you can never get that merchant back is if you do not have that integration with whoever they're ordering their inventory from and a POS provider comes along that does. Um, they will leave Correct. you in a heartbeat because it is just massively more convenient. Uh, it's so much better data that they get. Uh, it's real time. Like it's it's a huge difference. Uh, you know, I lost before I was selling POS systems. I lost several, and it's it, you, you always lose your big ones too, right? I mean, it's the it's the big company, yeah. it's the big you know small businesses that are that are doing these things and, and want these integrations. Exactly. And and those are, you know, obviously they're going to be profitable accounts. Right. Um, they're going to be larger, more volume, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, but these interfaces also uh, really lower the attrition, right? Because once they have yep. this connection, if there you is no cancel. other 
uh, ISV providing this type of service, there's just no way that they're going to switch software because it's just doing everything for them. They're saving 20, 30 hours a week in labor right. um, maintaining their, their items. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's let's talk about a different feature. I saw uh, you with a new release. I saw that you have some cash discount and different options to pass the cost of processing onto the consumer. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why you ended up including that and and how that's working with some of your clients now? Well, you're doing a great job, uh, James, of uh, really putting cash discounting out there. Um, so obviously, I'm I'm a big fan. So I listen to your to your show, uh, to your podcast, sure. and, Thank and you. your webinars and such. And so, um, uh, you know, we see it out on the field all the time, and we get calls from our clients. Hey, um, you know, this uh, this credit card company is offering cash discounting, and um, and then we also saw a lot of ISOs that were there was some concern there on what's happening as far as how cash discounting is being implemented right. out there. Right. Um, and and so I think one of the new challenges there is that there's a transaction fee that needs to be applied to the transaction. And and a cash discount. Um, so there's different ways of looking at it. Well, we've kind of accommodated all those different ways. We have the traditional cash discounting. We have uh, the reverse cash discounting. And then the one that's a combination of both where we can add a transaction fee and apply a cash discount right. at the same time. One, yeah, one of the things that makes our, our cash discount uh, uh, logic uh, um, a little different than everybody else is that since we are in the grocery space, our logic does cover EBT. Um, a lot of these uh, reverse cash discount systems out there aren't covering EBT, and all, our logic completely covers it, uh, whether it be a split transaction. We get a lot of split transactions in grocery stores where there's a partial EBT payment f with food stamps, and then the rest is paid with a credit card or with right, cash. Right, right. Yeah, and that can. Yeah, and so if, 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 if somebody doesn't understand that, then you know it's it's basically the same thing as like trying to sell cash discount to a restaurant that has tip adjust, where it throws all your all their numbers off because they're you're not able to apply the service fee to the the tip. And so with grocery stores, one of the reasons grocery stores have kind of been not off limits, but more difficult to sell cash discount to is because of EBT. And, and what I hear you saying, Danny, is that your system solves that problem because it's able to apply that service fee or however they have it structured. It's able to apply that to the EBT uh, volume as well. Correct. Got it. Correct. Okay. Yeah, we're able to accommodate EBT, whether it's a um, whether the transaction is solely EBT, all the items in the transaction are, are going to be paid with an EBT card, or um, if it's a split tender uh, transaction where there's a partial payment with EBT or partial payment with cash or partial payment with credit card, um, it, 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 uh, can handle all it that. Uh, accommodates all those use cases. Huh. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, so... I, I, I really lastly here, I want to make sure that our, you know, ISOs that are listening and things that they're, they understand that you do have a couple different options here with the reseller program and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, you, you do have the option where they could continue selling for, you know, they, they already have a, their own ISO, they're already, you know, selling and they want to use their processing, but they want to use your technology. So talk about that a little bit. Is that an option? Um, and, and kind of what are the options that you have for partnership? Yeah, that's definitely an option. So we we have two different programs. We have our white label solution, where essentially you're able to brand it 
your own, um, and you will be receiving updates as we release them. Um, and then we also have uh, the SaaS model, which is essentially you pay a monthly fee for every license that's out there, and uh, where our help desk is able to provide uh, uh, level two support for your for your reps. We, again, we make the software super easy to deploy and, and set up. So um, um, we've already kind of gone through all of those different uh, um, issues and they've they've uh, it, we've made it streamlined so that it's super easy even if somebody isn't uh, tech savvy um, deploying the software setting it up uh, we use a wizard to uh, to get all that information but going back to our program so we have a white label solution essentially we compile the software with your logo with your brand with your name um, all of our support menus and all of that will reflect your information um, and uh, that is uh, that is a great solution if you're wanting to brand it your own um, and uh, yeah we have a couple of ISOs taking advantage of that program and then more I guess the, the 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 program that we use quite a bit now is the SAS model where we have sure. a portal you want to register a new site you just log into the portal we give you credentials and uh, you download your license package the license package includes your license but it also includes the installer that uh, that uh, is used to um, to deploy the software to the stations. Sure, and then and then the the ISO in that case would be, uh, well, I guess that's that's a couple couple interesting questions that I just thought of out of all that. So, are in the in the white label model, or I guess in either model, are you collecting fees from the merchant, or are you collecting fees from the ISO, and then the ISO is adding those fees onto the statement, or does it go either way? Right. So usually on the white label solution, we do collect the fees directly from the ISO. There that's isn't a transaction fee per se. There is a licensing fee, and then there's a monthly uh, 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 help desk fee, I guess, so you can, sure, so, so you can leverage the help desk that we have. On the SaaS model, um, you pay one license fee per month per installation, and we don't get involved with the merchant services. That's completely uh, separate. Right. Um, so whether you're processing with First Data or TSIS or Global Payments, uh, we have solutions there. We can also quickly develop hardware integrations um, if we don't already have them. Sure. So that was that's funny you say that. That brought me right into my next question, which was the hardware. So in this model, is it set up to like who's deploying the hardware in, in this situation? Is this like you have an external vendor that the ISO is buying the hardware from or do you guys supply it? How does that work? Uh, we supply it. So um, we white label our hardware. Okay. Um, again, that can also uh, arrangements can be made so that we can brand it with the ISO's uh, really? information. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, and and um, we're able to provide the hardware, but again, our software pretty much runs on anything newer than Windows 7. Okay. Um, so we're able to deploy it to existing hardware fairly easily. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's that's really interesting as well. That's a that's a good thing to know. Um, you know, I could I could really go on for a long time talking about all these different uh, verticals and things like that. But let's you know let's kind of back up and and give some information out there. So let's say there's an ISO listening right now uh, that wants to learn more about this. Uh, where would you send that ISO to learn more about your company? Um, I would say uh, the best way to get in touch is via email. Uh, okay. My email is Danny. That's a D A N N Y at percent pos dot com. Percent Again, that's uh, Danny at percent pos dot com. 
Got it. Um, one last question I, I want to throw out there. So we've been talking a lot about ISOs. Um, what if there's kind of a smaller, like the individual agent that, you know, wants to work with you guys and, and sell this POS system? I'm assuming you'd have opportunities for that as well. Right. So that's where the SaaS model really comes into play, sure. because whether you need one license or you need 100 licenses, um, it's it's uh, it's on a per license model. Right. Um, it is branded percent POS um, of and and it's not custom branded, but um, that works for either an individual agent that's looking for a solution that they can uh, uh, deploy or um, or for a small chain of stores. We do actually have a cloud backend that uh, that we can connect to for reporting purposes and such. Sure. Um, it also synchronizes price, uh, prices across multiple stores. So if you're in ISO and you're in a situation where you're looking for a POS that uh, for for a client, that, for a merchant that has multiple locations, we're able to accommodate those type of situations on the SaaS model. Because sure. that's using our the cloud infrastructure. Got it. Okay. Wow. Really good stuff. Well, uh, Danny, I know a lot of people listening are, are definitely going to be uh, emailing you and wanting to check that out. So really good stuff today. Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to share your story with us. I really appreciate your time. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For the past 36 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at greensheet.com. Okay, so James, this week I want to report on a quarterly spending snapshot that was published in August by the Electronic Transactions Association and the Straw Hacker Group. Sure. Which shows uh, plenty of signs of uh, strong growth and uh, continued strong growth in, Good. in card transactions. Everybody likes strong growth. Loves it, right? The quarterly report, uh, which is they've been doing now for a couple of years, um, they uh, take a comprehensive look at st- same-store sales uh, across 3.7 million merchants with more than a trillion dollars in annualized consumer spending. So for those who don't know what the Straw Hacker Group is, basically they have an agreement where they work with most of the big acquirers mm-hmm. and they get data from all the big acquirers of their all of their merchants. Right, right. Yeah. And so they, you know, they, they, they take a look at same-store sales at this set group of, right. like I said, 3.7 million merchants, which is a pretty good representation. Yeah. So the snapshot found that year-over-year electronic transaction growth continues unabated, um, despite what uh, Jared Dryling, the uh, senior director uh, at TSG, calls, quote, political uncertainty, lower consumer confidence, and higher overall savings, uh, personal savings rates. Uh, Dryling said he expects the upward trend in electronic payments to continue and to drive nationwide economic growth across all regions. In fact, the only significant drop um, that was noted in the in the snapshot was spending at gas stations, which slowed to just under four percent, which is still okay. Right. Uh, but that compares to eighteen percent growth in in Q one twenty eighteen. Right. And uh, and that was that that drop was largely driven by lower gas prices. Hmm. Um, and uh, Dryling said that cons- quote consumers appear to be shifting that spend to boost savings or to splurge on discretionary categories like restaurants. So basically gas prices dropped and we all took the money we were spending on gas and went and bought food at a restaurant. You got it. Yeah. Pretty yeah, much. That's a pretty I, mean, good, I mean, if you ask me, that's a good trade. I, I mean, think it's a great trade. Yeah, it's I mean, pretty much what I've been doing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, you know, while some economists anticipate an economic uh, slowdown due to uh, escalating trade tensions, uh, the report uh, noted strong first quarter uh, consumer spending across all U.S. regions. You know, even right. some of those regions that, you know, we've been listening to reports on, you know, and reading reports in the news about closing factories right. in, in the Midwest and the upper Midwest and mm-hmm. so forth. And, uh, you know, even in the face of some of that and, right. you know, some of the the, the uh, scary uh, prospects of ongoing trade um, right. Debates, right. <laughs> you know, right. trade wars, I guess we call them. So, um, you know, that there's still some substantial growth there. And um, at 7.03%, consumer spending growth uh, or consumer electronic transaction growth was uh, strongest in the New England states. And that was followed by spending in the Southeast, uh, where uh, uh, increases in electronic transactions uh, were 6.81% for the first quarter. In the mid- Midwest, they grew by uh, 6.31%. In the Great Lakes states, they grew by 5.4%. In the Southwest, we saw a 5.23% increase in uh, electronic payments. Right. Uh, Rocky Mountain states, uh, electronic payment spending was up 4.9%. The Plain states, 4.65%. And the far western states came in last at 4.14%, which was still... Sure. So basically growth between 4 and 6.5%-ish. You know, yeah, maybe or like 7, you know, 4.5 right. to 7, 4 right. to 7. Right. Right. You know, and the ETA uh, straw hacker findings are, are pretty consistent with data that was released, released by the uh, federal government, the Commerce Department's Bureau okay. of Economic Analysis or Statistics. Right. Uh, they reported current dollar GDP rose by 3.8% in the first quarter. Sure. So that pretty well charts, you know, with sure. that. And in well, fact, a little like bit better. There's probably two things there that are, that are you know, maybe would affect those numbers too. I mean, one, like, you know, the, the cash spend, of course. Of course. So, you know, some of that, you know, that well, the numbers from the Straw Hacker Group is just electronic payment increase. Right, right. Also, I'm not exactly sure what those two numbers, if either or both or neither of those is inflation adjusted. I'm not sure. Right. And uh, the current dollar GDP... Right. When they say current dollar GDP, that that means me it's be- inflation adjusted, in, right? That's that would be my in- right. impression, which would make it a little bit lower, right? And then the straw hacker group, I don't believe, would be. No, I don't think adjusted. they go to that. Go yeah. to that so that, so that does make more sense. Yeah, I mean, your inflation is going to be one and a half, two percent, probably something. Right, like that. right, and then you also got to figure, you know, the GDP numbers are going to take in cash. Right. Right. You know, whereas the these yep. other numbers are not. Right. And, you know, and when you look at it, I mean, economic growth, and I, I, I've had this conversation with a lot of my friends, you know, lately, like, aren't you, you know, aren't you afraid that everything's right, going right. to collapse? And I'm like, you know, think about this. Our, 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 our um, GDP, current dollar GDP, rose by almost $200 billion in the first quarter. Right. I mean, that's that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's like almost if you if you you know if you draw that out through four quarters. Right. Almost a trillion. Almost a trillion. Yeah. Huge growth. If we had a trillion dollars to our GDP. Right. I don't think that that's a. Yeah, that's not a recipe for disaster. No. <laughs> just doesn't seem it to me. I mean, I yeah. think we are, you know we all know we've talked about ups and downs, economic ups right, and downs. Sure. They, they come with with the terms and goes. Right. Right. But. You know, and and as I often say to people when they ask me about this, it's like, look, you know, we still have to buy gas. We still have to buy food. Right, right, right. Yeah, there's a lot of wheels that are already turning that are... That are just not going to stop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Very interesting stuff, Patty. Thanks a lot. Sure. Thank you. 
This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. Well, Patty, today I want to talk about big deals and patience. Oh, patience is so important. It isn't is it? important. Uh, you know, um, one of the questions I get asked a lot from salespeople is that they run into this the situation where they start doing really well, they're prospecting, mm-hmm. and then they come into contact with their first big deal. So mm-hmm. a company's like doing, you know, a hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, a million a month, whatever it is. Uh, it's a you know fifteen location pizza shop, or right, it's right. A, a bank relationship where they might get referrals. Sure. And usually these things are handled in in the wrong way on several fronts. Oh, I can imagine because of, of lack of patience. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so the two ways that these are handled very wrong is. Number one, these deals and thinking about these deals and strategizing about these deals tend to take up an inordinate amount of prospecting time. Oh, I would imagine, sure. So you get this first big deal and you're like, oh my goodness, I got this big deal. I better like research the company and I better connect everybody on LinkedIn and I better go do all these other things. I got to go read up mm. on this business. And so um, let me give you, well, that's that's the one side. The, the other side of it is that then the approach to those businesses is not containing enough patience. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, kind of a hint of a desperation or an overexcitement. Right, sure. Which ends up killing the deal. And so the net effect is that salespeople, many of them are spending huge amounts of time on deals that are never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So let me give you my tips because this is interesting for me too. I, I am actually really passionate about this because um, my in my personal income really started to take off when I realized what I'm about to tell you today. Uh, mm. And you know, this is like you know eight years ago, nine years ago. Right. Um, for me, what I realized was two things that that really changed my viewpoint on this. Number one is that I realized that I really did need to spend a couple of hours a week chasing big deals. Sure. It's worth it. Right. You know, when you do actually close one of these larger multiple location type deals or mm-hmm. bank relationships, I mean, it, it is a game changer and you do make a lot of money from it. Right. But I need to spend a couple of hours a week um, on this. And so I had to limit my time commitment. Mm-hmm. So I had set time every week. And, and the great thing about big deals is usually, unlike a small business owner, with a big deal, you're normally dealing with employees that work nine to five. Right. So you can set aside every Thursday from 9 to 11 a.m. or sure. whatever. Right. And that's usually just as good as any other time. Sure. It doesn't really matter. It's not like you have to be doing these you know, crazy times. So you set that, that time apart and you start to look for big deals and start to develop a pipeline of big deals. So that was the first thing I noticed is, you know, set yourself a time. So it's like for those of you that aren't pursuing big deals at all, you should do that. Sure. But you just don't want to let it overtake your schedule of your other right. prospecting. Right. You know? right. Then number two is you treat these big deal contacts like you do small deal contacts 
meaning it's Hand a hold. contact. Right. You know, it's not like just because somebody from a big company returned your call, that doesn't mean they're about to sign up with you. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so there's that element. Now, there is kind of a third little side note on it, though, which is you approach, you, you look at them like any other uh, contact as far as the way you treat them and your level of excitement, you know, about it. Uh-huh. Right. If sure. not, maybe even a little bit less excited. Right. Um, but in addition to that, you also do have to add that extra measure of patience because right. the, you're spending two hours a week on it. And so it's t- difficult to communicate this like mindset, but it's like you're just spending two hours a week on it. Mm-hmm. So unlike your other prospecting that you're doing, you're actually not even really trying to get any particular result. You don't have any particular goals. Right. I know sure. that sound. Most salespeople are like, what? What sure. do you mean? I have to have goals. But it's kind of like, like, but it's kind of like, you know, when you when you take a class, right? Right. You don't take the entire class on the first day. Right. Right? Right. You it's a parse it out into pieces until you complete right. it. And right. so it sounds very similar. It is. It's, it's like very a- similar to that. And it's also like, you know, the problem too, though, is even with a, an example of like a class, you still have that like end date. Like, I know once I get done with eight right. hours, sure. I'm done. I'm done, right. Whereas these big deals, it literally might take you two years right. of following up once a month before mm-hmm. you get a deal. And you just can't worry about that. So it's like you have to somehow in your mind, and this is really difficult when you're struggling financially too. Right. You really somehow have to separate these big deals off in your mind as there's this thing I work on for a couple hours a week. I don't know what's going to happen with it. Eventually it may pay off. I'm just going to keep working on it. Right. Right. You know? And so all you do is you take your, you start the two hours going, okay, who do I have that I should go ahead and contact in my pipeline of big deals? Mm -hmm. And you're Mm -hmm. like, okay, cool. I'll I'll contact these. And then you're like, well, now I don't have anybody else to contact. What do I do? Well, go to sales, go on sales genie and download, you know, or go to infofree.com or infousa.com and buy a list of all the businesses in your area that are doing above X amount of revenue or have X number of locations. Mm -hmm. And, um, just, you know, reach out to them. Right. You know, go drive out to one of them. You know, just take some kind of action. And what I found is if you'll do that consistently for 12 or 18 months, and this is where most salespeople are like, what? You know, right. 12 to 18 months, you'll start to see results. Right. And that's why. It takes that long. Yeah. And I would imagine that that's why it's also important that even if you get that one phone call, not start counting your eggs. No. And you, and you know, know what? Chickens, rather, Sometimes you know? the most important thing in closing these big deals is to. Um, is to lay off a little bit. Uh-huh. When somebody would call me from one of these big deals, sometimes they'd call me at two in the afternoon on a Thursday. Well, I don't do my big deal stuff until Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't sound urgent to me, then I'd reach back out Monday morning. Right, right. I mean, if it sounded urgent, then well, yeah, of course, of course. But a lot of times, I'll just reach back out, and they're they're like, you know, they're fine. You yeah, know, of course. but they but if I call them back two minutes later. And it's then, like, well, yeah. what are you doing? You know, yeah. like you've, you know, like it's like so you're too hungry almost. You are, right? yeah. yeah. And you, you just have to step back a little bit and understand that when you're trying to get these big deals, you've got to have that patience, and you just have to be very methodical. Put a certain amount of time into prospecting. Then, mm-hmm. once you actually get a big deal on the hook, like ready to sign up, right? Then, of course, your whole world stops. And then you get this deal done, and you do sure. whatever you have to do. I remember right. one. I remember one deal. <laughs> then you my, don't put it off till Monday. No, no, no. I remember one deal. Of my uh, wife Christina could give you some interesting thoughts on this one, but I remember this one deal that I closed it was one of my first really big deals. Right. Uh, it was an eleven location place. Between all eleven locations, they did about one point three million a month. Nice. And uh, I made you know a ton of money on steel. Well, uh, we were taking vacation, and they were ready to move forward the week before vacation. Mm-hmm. So I signed them up. 
the week of vacation, we were at a lake house about three hours away. Right. And I was driving three times during that week. I had to leave at two in the morning, drive three hours to right. wor- work on it. There was an issue with an install or whatever. Right. And then I would get back at, you know, lunchtime and continue the vacation. I did that three times that week because, uh-huh. um, you know, that I was like, hey, this is a big deal. Can't, can't you, drop it. I can't. And, you know, that this is a deal where I probably made, you know, probably for four years, I made $1,000 a month on this deal. You know, so I mean, what you can't, that's, that's just too valuable. Like right. you have to get that deal. And right. so then it's like, then everything becomes about that deal and getting it done. But the leading up to it, you know, don't confuse somebody who's like kicking tires with somebody who's like, we need, we're ready to sign up. That's, mm-hmm. that's different. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, one last tip I'll give you on this. Don't be afraid to call in some reinforcements from your ISO or your processor. Oh, yeah. These big deals, you're going to need you some need help. need help on these big deals. Yeah. yeah. So, hey, good luck out there in the field. Good luck selling. I hope that you get some big deals in your pipeline. Start working them and be very patient. And what next thing you know, 12 to 18 months from now, you're going to be really glad that you did that when you close that first deal that's $500 or $1,000 a month residual. And and there it's might and, and one would think that if you start doing that now and you have you know all these ones in your pipeline, right. there's going to be... 12 months and then maybe 18 months. I mean, they'll they'll come home. They will. They will. You'll get some deals eventually. Yeah. Good luck. Good selling. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.